Hola, and welcome to the Beauteous Me podcast, a relatable and authentic space for all. Every week we hop on a roller coaster, share laughter and tears on topics we might be ashamed to discuss. We do this all while finding its inner beauty. My name is Jamili Whitfield, and the journey begins now. Hola, and welcome back, guys. I am so excited and humbled and happy to be here with one of my besties, Shamika Vargas. Say hi. Hola. (laughs) So I am going to professionally introduce my friend. Shamika Vargas is a licensed clinical social worker, and she is also the director of mental health services at Our Children Incorporated, where she oversees social work practice dedicated to the reentry and healing of formerly incarcerated women and their families. She is a 2019 NASW Sapphire Leadership Award winner and a passionate advocate who roots her work in reforming the criminal justice and child welfare systems and improving outcomes for women and families. Yes, yes, you do that. (laughs) Ms. Vargas has provided individual and group level services to adults and families involved in New York City family and criminal courts for over 10 years through her roles at the Bronx Defenders, Legal Information for Families Today, LIFT, New York Psychotherapy and Counseling Center, and the Jewish Child Care Association. She has also supported social work students in her roles as an advisor, field instructor, and adjunct lecturer at Columbia School of Social Work. Yes, yes, she does that. Melanin magic in the house. (laughs) Independently, Ms. Vargas facilitates workshops and coaching sessions with emerging and seasoned professionals and is particularly passionate about the experience of women of color as providers and consumers of social services. She received her BSW from Marist College and her MSW from Columbia University. But her greatest work is seen in her 12-year-old son, Joseph. Woo-woo! Wow, just reading that, I got goosebumps. Like, my friend is smart. Like, I have smart friends, guys. Like, I have some badass women in my life. So, welcome! Say hi! Hello, everybody. Hello, everybody. That was a long bio. My bad. It's okay. It is a-okay. So... Today's topic is so near and dear, and it's been like pulling teeth to get her here to do this because it is on imposter syndrome. Yes. And it is something that we all struggle with, especially as women of color. But for those of you who don't know what imposter syndrome is, I am going to give you the definition from Harvard business as it defines it. Imposter syndrome can be defined as a collection of feelings of inadequacy that persist despite evident success. Imposters, quote unquote, suffer from chronic self-doubt and a sense of intellectual fraudulence that override any feelings of success or external proof of their competence. Ooh, can we talk about that? We sure can. Yes, let's talk about that. I mean, funny enough, I think about the fact that even as you were reading that bio, and I said, yeah, that was too long, my bad. (laughs) (laughs) That's partially because it is really um, weird, I guess, when you hear the things that you've worked on. So even for myself, this topic is near and dear to me because I see it come up a lot when I'm working with 
students, when I'm working with other staff, within my personal life. But even, of course, everything we talk about in some ways is also like, and I'm a survivor. Right, so I'm right. Not just what they say, the president, I'm also a client. That's right. So uh, when it comes <laughs> to the imposter syndrome, it's definitely something that um, I've been working to really... I guess, process in my own life. So I'm very passionate about it. And I think that's important that you say that because as women of color, when we're talking about imposter syndrome, I also too feel uncomfortable sometimes when people are like, you're smart, you're this, you're that. You're like, I just, I did school. Like I, I graduated with 3.9 JPA and everybody's supposed to do that. Like it's not that what we supposed to do. Like, okay. But you feel uncomfortable sometimes, even with people telling you that you do deserve a seat at the table, mm-hmm. um, something kind of attracts in you and it's like, but do I, am I smart enough? Can I do this? Can I not do this? Mm-hmm. And I think it's important for you to kind of share in some of your struggles. And we've talked about it, you know, personally as friends, but even with you sitting as an adjunct professor at Columbia, yeah. you know, and, and students asking you things or, or things where you're just like, I know I deserve this. Do I deserve this? Mm-hmm. I know I'm supposed to be here. Am I smart enough? Yeah. You know? Yeah. I think um, speaking specifically to that experience, just teaching at the school, um, I'm a graduate from the school and I've definitely taken on a few roles. I've been an advisor, I've definitely been a field instructor, um, and being a lecturer and teaching courses was for me the next level, something that I was excited to try out, Mm -hmm. um, that in my heart I did believe I could do, and yet the fear was nearly paralyzing. Mm. When it came time, uh, last year was the first time I started teaching in the spring, Um, And when it came time to even submit like a syllabus, whether working from a template or not, just literally going week from week to week Mm -hmm. and looking at it and really trying to to think about, do I even understand this topic enough? So for example, one course is a mid-semester course that's called Mass Incarceration and Reentry. And I work in reentry and I'm very, you know, I know a lot and I (laughs) Right. You're like, I know a whole lot. I'm passionate about mass incarceration and still... I sat there staring at these uh, readings and the syllabus and thinking to myself, what do I know? Right. What do I actually know? Right. And how can I even share that with students? And how can I um, even engage people and really provoke critical thinking skills and really try to support that growth for them? You know, it, it happened over and over again. And even I'll say the first couple of weeks of class, I probably would give myself like an extra two hours before class even started just to get my head in the game. Mm. Um, shout out to Lizzo for some of her tracks. <laughs> Go Lizzo. <laughs> <laughs> but I would sit there and I'd be lying to you if I didn't say, oh, I had to use the bathroom. Like my stomach would be wrecked. <laughs> like I would be like, I'm going to die. I can't do this. Not today. Not today. Yeah. <laughs> and you go through all that. But. I wound up teaching that course. Mm-hmm. It wound up going very well mm-hmm. um, as per student feedback, right? Not just the sense that we get, but actual feedback from the people in the room. Um, I went to go on and teach a longer semester course called Contemporary Social Issues. Went through the same thing. That one was even worse because that one was 14 weeks of different topics related to like our contemporary social um, culture in society. Um, society is repetitive, but culture and just the issues that we go through, how we even define issues. And can we talk a little bit about that for those sure. audience listeners who don't know what that means? Sure. So Contemporary Social Issues was a course really dedicated to analyzing different things that are going on in our world mm. um, that may be at the forefront of what we see in the media, maybe really at the forefront of a lot of policy change 
change, um, topics like intimate partner violence, things like gentrification, obviously mass incarceration, um, violence a, in a lot of different ways, even a lot of topics, yeah. a lot of topics. And what I can definitely say is that I don't know everything about everything. <laughs> I don't know everything about anything. And that's frankly. okay though. Right. Isn't it okay? It is okay. And so I think when we, when we talk about imposter syndrome is being able to give yourself that freedom, mm -hmm. right? Is to understand that the purpose of showing up at any table, mm -hmm. be it as a professor, be it as a director at my agency, be it at a committee meeting in mm -hmm. the community talking about criminal justice reform, is that it's not my job to know everything right. about anything, mm. right? It's about honoring the fact that I have worked hard enough to be there, that I do have ideas that are valuable, um, and that I matter, right? And you said something important, honoring, mm -hmm. and it's okay that I don't know anything. And I think that's what we struggle a lot with, with imposter syndrome. And just seeing, that gave me goosebumps in you saying that because we sit here and it's a straight, no, I can't, mm -hmm. or yes, I can, and not honoring that it's okay if you don't know everything. Yep. And that's the beauty about everything that we experience in life, that it's okay. Right. You know, it's interesting. Imposter syndrome shows up even in the discussion across so many different populations. It's not something that's just, um, you know, indicative or just central to one population. But I think we would be remiss to not acknowledge that it is definitely going to impact people at like the crossroads mm. of various identities, right? So you think about, um, I see imposter syndrome show up a lot for women in general, but I'm definitely going to see it for people of color and I'm yeah. definitely going to see it for women of color and I'm definitely going to see it for people um, just representing different uh, crossroads, right? Cross identities because we actually aren't typically at the table. Mm -hmm. So there are not as many seats for us. And so when we do show up, I think there's a tremendous amount of pressure to where we feel like, are we representing for everyone remotely like us? You know, if I'm speaking for the queer community, am I the only voice for the queer community? Right. If I'm speaking for Muslims, am I the only Muslim? It happens to us time and time again. Um, and, and sometimes that makes us feel like we have more to prove, mm -hmm. right? And yet we also know that people might be second guessing us because we aren't always at the table. Mm. So I think there's a reality in that we, in the fact that we know there are reasons for, um, there are reasons for why we feel not as confident and yet the work is in being able to support each other and also encourage ourselves and remember that we did work to get there. We do deserve to be there. Absolutely. And we have to keep showing up. And I think, I think it's important that you say that because in being transparent, I feel uncomfortable as uh, a leader in, in my organization, as a leader in social work, um, sometimes sitting at the table. Like, do I belong here when I'm sitting in conferences, whether it's with board members, whether it's um, a conference with uh, executive leadership at other organizations, where I'm like, do I belong here? Am I smart enough? Am I supposed to be here? Are you looking at me some kind of way? Because I'm Latina, I'm curvy. Um, the way I speak, where I come from, where's your last name? Where's your first name? Where are you from? Where all these kind of things make you second guess and you sit uncomfortable, sweaty, um, trying to ensure that you answer because you want people to know that, yeah, I do deserve it. So there's like that two part. I do deserve a seat at the table. Hey, I'm here. And then it's like, oh, don't look at me too much. What are you right. looking at? What are you saying? What are you staring at? Right. And I think that that comes up for a lot of us all the time, especially being in a leadership position where you have to be the 
face of your organization, of your program, et cetera, where people are like, and who is she? And she leads that program. I don't know if I like this or this mannerism. Or if you do come across passionately, and I think that's important, passionately. There's a difference between how people who are of color come out and display things as opposed to those who are not of color and, and our white counterparts, that they can say something in a meeting and it would be okay, and then we would say something and it's not. And so that also, I feel like, kind of adds to, well, shit, I said something. Now, you know, are you going to say that I belong or I don't belong on the, right. at, the, at, at the table? Right. And I know those are some things that come up and it comes up for a lot of us. Absolutely. Um, I was in a meeting not too long ago, mm-hmm. actually a couple of weeks ago, and it was a mixed meeting, a uh, professional meeting, where we were talking about various topics and really talking about reform. Um, if people are familiar with like the closed Rikers movement, the closed Rosies movement, yeah. uh, we were spe- speaking specifically about um, the women of Rikers Island and how there are, at the time of the meeting, um, probably roughly 250 women still on the island. Wow. And just, yes, which is a very, wow. very low number, which is wonderful, right? Thinking about ways that we can actually address people's needs mm-hmm. without just incarceration. So the numbers are down to 250. What that also means for those of us who are in service provision is that we have to also acknowledge that perhaps those that are still left on the island are folks who are dealing with high cases or high risk cases, severe cases, severe accusations and allegations. So we were at a a meeting, right, with different professionals and we were talking about the ways in which we want to handle certain things. And what I remember is that one of the topics we were discussing was getting very heated and I was leading the discussion in terms of that I think collaboration was necessary in a particular way for us to make sure that we're meeting the needs of the women who are stuck at the island and even those who may be able to leave. And at one point people were talking over each other. A lot of people were asking me questions. So I was trying to answer one question, next question, one question, next question. And at some point an older white woman um, silenced me. Mm. Um, she felt mm. the conversation was, I guess, getting too out of hand. I'm not really sure. It's very interesting. Um, but she commented very verbally enough, Shamika. And publicly. In public. And publicly. And so, That's enough to kind of sink us into that imposter syndrome shit. Like, it really is enough to kind of just deflate fear. Yeah. Like, what? I think to myself, had this been 10 years ago, I might have, like, passed out. Mm-hmm. Like, I could have just the earth could have eaten me alive, Mm -hmm. I think, and I would have wanted it to happen if this were maybe 10 years ago. Um, How it happened, it was not 10 years ago, it was a couple weeks ago, Mm -hmm. and that went very differently, Mm -hmm. which was that, number one, I completely ignored her because I had every right to be saying what I was saying, and I knew, and where the imposter syndrome comes in is because for a split second, I said to myself, Am I being too loud? Mm. Like, am I being, as you say, like that pa- that line between passionate, passionate and aggressive? Right. I was like checking myself in real time. Like, did I curse? I didn't curse. Right. Like, did I, you know, how did, did I say I, it? How, well, how was I my stance? It? How was my tone? But the flip side of that was everyone's talking and you're talking to me. Like, why did you just do that to me? Why did you feel that that was appropriate? And I really was one of the only brown folks at the table. Mm. Probably two other people of color at the table. And they Mm. weren't even in that particular part of the conversation. So that became actually very upsetting. Uh, Flash forward to how we handled that. A couple days later, I had to pull her aside Mm -hmm. and have a conversation with her, which again, when struggling with imposter syndrome, um, especially talking to someone older than you who's been doing this work for a while, you do question yourself a lot about whether they were seeing something maybe that I wasn't seeing. But I got to have a conversation and say to her, you know, 
in the meeting a couple days ago, this is what was going on. This is what happened. This is what you said. I really didn't appreciate that. And I asked that you never do that again. I said, I would never do that to you. And I don't think you would do that to other people. Mm. Um, And she apologized, which is a big deal because the truth is we can say things to people and it doesn't mean that they're going to actually apologize or even acknowledge, but she did. And her excuse was something to the effect of everybody was talking and um, I kind of just honed in on you and I don't know why. And that speaks to its own implicit biases, which will be a... Oh, that's a whole Yes, I've been dying to record on that, but yes. yes. (laughs) I wanted to say, oh, I know why you honed in on me. But for the meantime, in between time, we'll focus on the fact that you have been warned, Mm -hmm. basically. I didn't say that part to her because then that's when when the line goes. Yeah, that's the line goes. I did say to her, though, I expect that, you know, that would not happen again in Mm -hmm. the future um, and that we would go about things very differently, to which she agreed, right? But I think about that. I think about being in the classroom we were talking about earlier and some of the best feedback I've ever gotten are actually, of course, from students, but specifically from students of color who talk about how Mm. valuable it has been to them just to see a professor of color in the front of the classroom, inspiring, you know, critical thinking and conversation Mm. and discussion and with empathy and with confidence. And so my stomach might be doing a whop and, you know. But you standing up there. But I got, you know, Lizzo lyrics pumping about that juice and all that and the the tempo and all that. Yeah. And and so I guess it leans into faking it until you make it. And uh, I don't know. And that's that's one of the things that people always say about imposter syndrome, too, is that sometimes it's like fake it till you make it, fake it till you make it. And I know that kind of goes in in research that I was reading. A a lot of people allude to the imposter syndrome to also fake it till you make it. Um, which is important. And I, and I like that you mentioned that your students, um, loved seeing a professor of color. And I think for me and what, um, inspired me to get my BSW in social work was a professor of Mm -hmm. color. And I will never forget her, Dr. Nilda Hernandez. I don't know where you at. Yes. I've been trying to find you. <laughs> somebody find her. I know somebody finds her because I even went to my college reunion and asking, and I don't know where she is, but wherever she is, she touched me and she inspired me to, to get into the field. I saw this strong Latina woman. She was African-American. She was Afro-Latina, okay? And, you know, standing in the classroom with her pencil skirt. Maybe that's why I wear a lot of pencil skirts and pointy heels. Because <laughs> she inspired me to get into the field. And, and just seeing a professor of color was enlightening and is enlightening and still is enlightening. And I think it's also important um, for our kids. But that's a whole nother conversation. That's, listen, sis. <laughs> but I think it relates because, mm-hmm. again, um, I do think imposter syndrome is sometimes also rooted in a lack of representation, yeah. especially for certain people. Um, but overall, you know, one of the things I was also thinking about, we, we currently live in a society where so many things are in our face because of social media. Yes. That there's a constant comparison. Yes. As well. Yes. I think without social media, Preach. you know, imposter syndrome we've been, has been discussed as a topic actually since the 70s. Yes. So that was way before the advent of social media. But studies are already showing that Social media does not help Mm -hmm. with imposter syndrome because if we as human beings are already struggling with insecurity, are already struggling with confidence and how we move forward in in our respective fields and the things that we're doing, to then also see, it feels like, you know, most people post the best of themselves, Mm -hmm. not the worst of themselves, and not even the moments where it's just like, I'm not sure. We don't tend to see that as much. So that means you're seeing people's A game all the time. 
So if someone gets this wonderful promotion or an award or this or that, and you're just looking like, oh, oh. they're so smart, they're so this, right. and everything I'm doing is just whatever. Who even cares? Mm-hmm. Even if you're doing just regular, regular, smegular mm-hmm. stuff, as they say, or if you're also doing things that are popping too. Right. You just can't help but to compare yourself, and yet that's probably one of the worst things you can do is compare yourself to someone else. And let's talk about a little bit about imposter syndrome and how that's translated from family family experiences because in the research that I was doing um a lot in the Asian culture and the Asian subculture um imposter syndrome is actually the percent the percentage and I'm not quoting this right but the percentage of people experiencing imposter syndrome it's higher in that population than in black and brown folks which is very interesting and I, a lot of it has to do with family pressures to for education yeah. where you go to school who do you become what do you become who you're marrying what are you doing yeah. for you to kind of be in line with other family members yeah. and what society expects you if you're from this part of and when we were talking with um, one of our friends when we were at the women of color event she said well if you're part of a part of nigeria then you have this amount of money and they're expecting you to be a doctor they're expecting you to be this expecting you to be that um and it's interesting in in, in other cultures where that expectation is is prep it's yeah. it's high yeah. um and so how they experience imposter syndrome is at a rapid rate than how we do which is yeah. really interesting to me i think it makes sense because again i think that if you if you start everyone almost at a baseline of um i think in general you think go back to like school mm-hmm. age, right um, a child starts school, they want to feel, they might not have the words to be able to say, I want to feel valuable, I want to feel recognized, mm-hmm. I want to feel important and all that. And yet, that's really kind of the beginning of a lot of those conversations. Do you get good grades? Um, do people put your work up somewhere, whether mm. in your house or in the school? Um, did you get an award? Were you right. recognized in this way and that way? So I think that's already like a baseline experience for so many people. Um, and then when you um, put that up against with cultural uh, pressures, right? So whether family as a culture or religion or um, nationality as a culture or the intersection of all the above, uh, you really start to see an even more heightened sense of there is a pressure for me to perform at this level. Mm-hmm. And yet I don't know if I have the skills to perform at that level. And I still think representation matters because I still think that for people when, again, not being used to necessarily seeing people who look like them in certain spaces, mm-hmm. um, feeling like, oh, my God, I'm the one to carry it all. And then even if you are in a setting where you do see a lot of people that are similar to you, um, I think it still triggers, but is that one, is that person smarter than me? Or that right. person's more confident than me? That person's more charismatic mm-hmm. than I am? Um, the pressures of imposter syndrome are really to succeed and to succeed in a way that it, that kind of shuts down all questions. And I don't know that there could be such a thing. You think about workplaces, no workplace functions alone. No. Like even if you have the tip top CEO, mm-hmm. the CEO needs somebody. The CEO can't do the job by themselves. Not at they have all. An entire team. Mm-hmm. And so I think is remembering like the value that we have in a team approach. Um, I think families can be really hard on mm. kids. About I even think about like birth order. Don't you? Yeah. Because I'm the oldest of five, and I'll be and I'm gone. the youngest of five. You know, and I'll be darned <laughs> sometimes. Well, six, birth, yeah. <laughs> birth order can even trigger like who you think you're supposed to be. So being the oldest, it's like, well, I was parentified and I had teen parents, so we were kind of growing up together in mm-hmm. a way. Um, and I certainly felt the need to perform and to excel and succeed 
uh, maybe to just even honor and respect the sacrifices of the generations before me that weren't able to make it to a certain thing. Mm-hmm. But I think even as the baby, <laughs> I think babies can feel the pressure to be like, I got to show up somehow. Who are you telling? My brother, when he went to law school, he was actually going to become a doctor and then he switched and went to law school. Do you know the pressure in that family? Child, I'm child, I'm child. I'm you have... One sibling who's a lawyer, and then everybody better get their life together. Right. You know, when I went into social work, my mom was like, "What's that? Yeah. What are you doing? Yeah. Like, very judgmental." I'm like, "But I'm, I'm wanna, I wanna help people. Yeah, people like everybody." Right. My great-grandmother, may she rest in peace, I remember I tried to explain to her what a social worker was when oh. I went to college. And I remember she yawned. She was watching, like, her telenovelas. And she kind of <laughs> yawned and said in Spanish, like, oh, I wish you would just get married and be a nurse or a teacher. Oh. <laughs> no, I'm lying. Not even a nurse. Let me not misspeak. I'm sorry, Grandma. Not a nurse. She actually said a secretary or a teacher because oh. she was old, old. Oh. And <laughs> so, those were the two jobs back the in the day. Jobs, you so either taught you was a secretary. Nurse. That would have been fancy, fancy. So she definitely did not understand what it meant to be a social Right. Worker. Like, you're not doing any revolutionary yeah, work. She, I don't know what you're doing. Really, you either teach or you be a secretary. Figure it out. <laughs> and really she was worried about her other thing she loved to say to me in Spanish was that she hoped she didn't die before I got married. And unfortunately, she did. She, so I'm yeah. sorry, Grandma. You have to see right. what happened. <laughs> Absolutely. I'm telling you the pressures because also at Fordham, I was thinking of doing the dual program, the law and social work degree. Of course, my mom was like, well, why don't you do it? Like, ma'am, I I just, I got a four month old baby. I fast track my career. Let me do what I have to do. But the pressures are enormous. And speaking about that pressure in my other siblings who didn't get to accomplish those things, how they felt Mm -hmm. and how they feel and the resentment that they felt towards my brother, who was an attorney, mm-hmm. where they felt you were favored, you were liked more, you you are someone, you're important. Mm-hmm. And because we didn't finish school or do what we had to do, the resentment. Yeah. It's so interesting, the resentment. Yeah. But I also then think about kids whose parents have graduated school, um, have master's degrees, and they don't turn out to go to school or finish mm-hmm. school or whatever. And those pressures, yeah. where it's just like, my parents are doing this, mm-hmm. and... Yeah, the pressure we put on kids ourselves as as the parents, if we think we quote unquote made it, Mm -hmm. we always want. I think every generation wants more. Yeah, quote unquote. It's levels. It's levels to it. Quote all the time. Yeah, you students. But um, you know, we look at our kids like we've made it to a certain level. Mm -hmm. Everybody always wants more for the next generation, uh, but we are. I think human beings just are prone to really pushing it like oh just yes constant. and i do think that that even varies by culture and countries yes. even um but i'll say speaking in american society like we really kind of push it like if you make it to a certain level mm-hmm. you expect your children to, mm-hmm. make it to at least that level but really better mm-hmm. right and so i wonder like what that trickles down to for the next generation um i was thinking going back to what you said about the siblings though i think sometimes n- siblings friends family members people that even feel left behind especially if you grew up in in low-income neighborhoods mm-hmm. like many of us have uh, i think there's also a projection that happens which is then the people assume that whoever did do well to a certain level that that person thinks they're better than everybody else because oh, I've, I've been hurled that girl one of my ago, brothers many years Lord, ago was hurled. Yes. you think you're better than everybody yes. else and i and yes. which is fascinating when you're oh just God. really getting your bearings and right. you really are like on that bike with the, you know, the, what do they call the training wheels? And they just took one off and you're wobbling and yes. just trying to find your way. 
and someone hurls that you think you're better than child them. you spoke to my soul like, like, i'm telling no you when you said this about nobody else right and i think when you and i think that's important because even when you li- move away from the hood or you come back and you return and you know Part of it is somewhat of, of it, especially when you're younger, you're in college, you do feel a little stuck upish, where you're just like, yeah, I'm, I'm in college. Hi. I'm in college. Welcome. I'm in college. But there's, you know. Eating ramen. What, right. <laughs> Eating sandwiches and ramen noodles all day. You know, that's what I'm doing. But when you come back um, and then, you you know, you've graduated, you've matured and everything, it's a different experience. You do see things differently. And you do experience the neighborhood quite differently. And so people take that as being stuck up. But I had family members who would be like, oh, you think because you finished college that you think you're the shit. That's that's not what it is. Right. But that's your stuff. Yeah. Because I'm, I'm me. I'm a different person. I'm a mature person. I'm not that immature person. I'm not out here, you know, drinking nutcrackers outside on a Saturday and then Moodle every weekend. Yeah. No. You know, there's things, there's growth. There's things you want better for yourself. Yeah. Um. And I don't judge anyone who hasn't been able to because everybody has a different circumstance. But some of that insecurity in themselves has created some of that lashing um, where it's created conflict in the family. Yeah. I think that's important, though, the idea of also not judging in the other direction because one of the things that likes to rear its head, I feel like, is almost like a distant cousin, Mm -hmm. is respectability politics, Mm -hmm. right? So we talk about imposter syndrome basically being like not necessarily feeling like you have the skills to be where you are or feeling like a fraud. And also, please note very clearly that if you lie about what you've done, that is a fraud. That is fraud. That's fraud. If you lie about what you got, that's fraudulent behavior. Don't don't post half a picture by a no, window and no. you saying that you're on an airplane no, don't do so that that's <laughs> so imposter syndrome is like you actually do have the skills and the ability exactly but you don't feel confident exactly enough. so i feel like a distant cousin to imposter syndrome sometimes can be respectability politics. Mm. And respectability politics a lot of times in a kind of quick nutshell is really the way we carry ourselves mm-hmm. believing that we have to do things a certain way to be taken seriously yes. and to earn our space right mm. and so i think sometimes when you are successful if you're not careful and it's often used um anyone can fall sucker to respectability politics and i say fall sucker yeah. to it because it's it's a farce right mm-hmm. this idea that um black and brown folks should only be able to achieve certain things professionally if they behave and dress a certain way mm-hmm. i'm not about that life, mm-hmm. right so but a lot of times sometimes when you a lot of times i should say when you are um successful when you are starting to see that things are going well we ourselves even as people of color can start to take on some of really what's part of like white supremacy in believing mm. that now we start looking at our own brethren as our own brothers and sisters and like well you don't talk right so you shouldn't have that job and you don't dress right so you shouldn't be here oh you know my and you have to be really yes careful yes i've, I've like, seen that we're just recultivating mm-hmm. what messages we have gotten mm-hmm. that have shut us down mm-hmm. you know as concretely as i remember my, one of my first jobs where someone said to me they hired me for the job and they said to me if it wasn't for the fact that you spoke so well I almost couldn't stop staring at your eyeshadow. What? Yes. What? And my eyeshadow was. What my eyeshadow? I'm Puerto Rican. Did you like, have the white eyeshadow? Match Did my you put eyeshadow to my shirt or something? That's not my. It's it. Like, well, you know, was not it because I'm old? It but. wasn't the white eyeshadow though. No, right? no, that's no, been out of order not. a long no, no. time. I was about to. No, it's probably I was about like to take greenish friendship or credits, or but it's okay. Greenish no. or purple? That's nothing. I don't know. It wasn't green and purple at the same time. It was either a green or purple. Right. Remembering that time frame. But it's little things like that. And the person mm. who said it to me was actually a person of color. And I'm like, see? And now, mm. as an older person, I can say, dang. And I'm not old, but you know what I mean. Yeah. I'm seasoned. 
season. Um, but now I can look back and then I go, see, that's that stuff where somebody mm. told you that the only way that you were worth being, you know, at the table was if you looked like this, like mm. you dressed like white America or you looked like a middle class person and you didn't wear anything too noticeable or too whatever. Um, and then you're now messaging that to other folks younger than you coming into the field. And, you know, it's something that I think we also have to be conscious of as we talk about this. We do have to be conscious about it. And I think, you know, you're just reminding me of some of the conversations that I have with my son, especially because he's in a predominantly white school Mm -hmm. where it's just like, Michael, be careful about this. Be careful about this. Be careful about that, because you don't want to be perceived in this way or received in this way or um, mindful of how you're speaking so that people can respect you. And you think back of that. And it's a lot of it. It's protection, um, protecting my child from the implicit biases that he experiences on a daily basis. Um, but also protect him from his mom and not going over there and, you know, just shutting shit down. <laughs> you know, you have to be, I don't want to have to go to your I don't want to have to go to your school. Viral. Not, not, not at all. But we, it, we do it in so many different ways. And protection, you know, that's real because at the end of the mm-hmm. day, we don't live in vacuums either. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, we remain conscious that we are in a world with people who are both rooting for us as well as people who are not rooting for us, mm-hmm. people who don't know they should be rooting for us. Like everybody's out there. Um, and so it's finding that line between, okay, realistically, what do I need to do or what can I do in this space? Um, and how are things going to be received? But as well as challenging some of that when we can, because we can't live by other people's standards. No. Either you right. suffocate under that pressure. Absolutely. So what is some advice you would give listeners mm-hmm. on um, overcoming imposter syndrome, but also acknowledging when it's coming up for you? Yeah. I think when someone is offering you a new opportunity and your stomach feels absolutely sick mm-hmm. and your mind starts to race of all the reasons why you can't do that particular thing. Um, then I think that that's a first uh, step to acknowledging like, uh oh, I'm having I'm, I'm having a flare up, mm-hmm. I'm having an imposter syndrome flare up. Um, in terms of tackling, I would definitely say uh, awareness is key. So acknowledge like that's what's happening to you. Stop yourself in your tracks in that moment. Say, okay, my stuff is coming up, or like Brene Brown likes to call them the gremlins. Yes. Um, so the gremlins are showing up. I think you really do have to uh, try to talk to yourself as you would talk to someone that you love the most, mm. the most, right? And um, last week I just talked about self-love. So yeah, yeah absolutely. Well, because oftentimes we can actually demonstrate empathy and love to others way better than we do to ourselves. Mm-hmm. So sometimes it's the practice of bringing that inward, right? And say, okay, you can do this. You're capable. I think being honest, what part of this feels unmanageable and what part of this feels manageable? Because then that gives you a game plan. Perhaps somebody's asking you to do a presentation on something that you really have not presented on. Mm-hmm. What pieces do you already know? And like, what do you have to do next? Like, okay, I can't, if I were asked to do this right now, I can't do it. But if you're giving me a month, mm-hmm. then I have to research X. I have to take a look at Y. I have to do a couple of run-throughs. Like, you come up with a game plan to get it done. Oh, that is, uh, come up with a game you're giving me some, done. like, PTSD. I remember someone <laughs> asked me, like, oh, there's a list of presentations for women of color. Would you like to do it? And I absolutely said no. This was about a year ago because I was like, I, I don't know what I'm going to talk about. I, I don't know what I'm going to present on. And yeah. so it's it's real. It's really real. And it comes up for me, you know. And I, by you saying that, that just that email is just flashing in my face right now. Where it was like, I think you would be great for this. And I was like, no, yeah. no, I can't. I'm, I'm, I don't think so. Yeah, oh. I tried this thing that's a, the opposite. Mm-hmm. I tell myself, um, 
try to say yes to the things that scare you, Ooh. which may include a roller coaster. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's like, okay, this is what it is. is Get it done. House, it scares me. Let's try it. Let's try but it. But I do. I, I really challenge try myself. Try to say yes to, to the things, things that, that scares you. you. Ooh, but now, try to say yes. I do that because what could happen is somebody sends me an email about something. I want to delete it. I want to act like I never got that email. Right. I never got that request. So what I do is as soon as I get an email or a request or someone says, hey, can you do this? And it starts to scare me. I close it immediately. Mm. I give myself a time frame to come back to it. And in that time frame, I may call like one friend. I don't call a lot of people because then you start getting too many opinions. Yes. And you got to be careful. Yes. Too because people will also project their limitations yep. on you. So if something scares them and you ask them their opinion, they're going to give you all the reasons why it scares them mm-hmm. and pretend that it's for your benefit. We're trying to ixnay all that. Right. right. So I might call at least one friend that I know is someone who has my back and would be honest. Like mm-hmm. if they were like, oh, I need to get somebody asked me to do a financial campaign presentation my friends would be like yeah, you, girl, you no, that's not that's not for you that's that no, all. right so i i usually will close the email call one person that i trust walk through my fears and sometimes you know that's something even from like clinically for us in like cbt where you walk through anxiety and mm-hmm. you say what's the worst that could happen right and you walk through the idea of what's the worst that could happen and then you walk through and if that happened would that matter a, a week after a mm-hmm. day after a month after a year after Nine times out of ten, the answer is no. Mm. So then I give myself a time frame to come back to the request and be able to say in my cheeriest email voice, thank you so much for thinking of me. I'm (laughs) humbled by your blah, 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 and would like some more information, but I am interested in bloop, 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 and bloop, and blah. There you go. And then before you know it, you know, things happen. And then, and you don't know. I think the biggest experiences that I've had that really uh, support that saying yes mm-hmm. is that without fail everything I've ever said yes to that ever scared the crap out of me I've never had a time where not one person like or at least one person doesn't come up and say that something that I said shared whatever whatever really touched them in a meaningful way and it could be across so many different topics and so I think to myself, then that means that that was where God intended for me mm-hmm. to be on that day at that time for that particular person or, right. or people. Or people. Um, and that to me is humbling. So you can't take those talents for granted either. Yeah. I can't sing and I can't dance. So I mean, I got to do what I do. <laughs> I do what I do. You got to do what you do with your intellect. Got to do what I do. Anything else you would like to share? Um, I just hope for whoever is listening that something from today um, really sticks with you, Mm -hmm. that whatever you've been questioning, that you've been um, thinking about or trying not to think about, that this encourages you to move forward and to know that you can do this and that if you need support, that I'm sure you have at least one person in your life that you may not realize has all the words you need. And if they don't, we do. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you so much, guys. This was so interesting. I am so happy, honored, blessed, thankful, grateful. You name it. Everything ateful, ooful, ooful. <laughs> Lizzle, whizzle, you name it. I am so happy. Thank you for being here, and I love you. And, guys, tune in. Make sure that you rate, subscribe, and forward to all your friends on Instagram. You can find me at beauty underscore in underscore behavior um, on Instagram. And also, don't forget to email us at info at IamBeauteousMe.com. Adios. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Beauteous Me podcast. Please be sure to download new episodes every week. 
and send us your girl what were you thinking or asking for friend stories to info at imbeauteousme.com. All entries remain anonymous. Also, don't, 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 don't forget to rate, review, and hit the subscribe button now.